0: Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. Also... If you've got any questions you'd like me to answer in a future episode, then go to the Contacts tab on steamsmokermirrors.com. And And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. (laughs) Taking us behind the scenes this week is one of the most significant names in not just the British, but the international music industry. He is an award-winning musical supervisor, musical director, arranger and composer. He's conducted the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, the BBC Concert Orchestra and almost every major musical in the West End along with live concerts and galas at the royal albert hall and glastonbury on the telephonic speed dial he has multi-oscar winners don black and leslie bricus also tony banks from genesis and dame shirley bassey and folks that's just the bees he's also friends with lionel Richie, brian may and i could bang on but i know you'd much rather listen to his voice than mine he is a precious friend and it is an enormous privilege to welcome mr.
1: Mike Dixon you are so very kind I was looking round to see who you were talking about <laughs> but but this laundry list of
0: stuff you've done Mike is incredible in fact it's a life incredibly well spent in the music industry and it's hard to know where to start so I thought maybe we should start in a kind of chronological order and how we th- first met in
1: 1994 well, I've been thinking about this. Hmm. I, we, I think we met in 94, but we worked together, maybe not knowing it, but we worked together in 1989 on the Royal Variety Show, which was conducted by Alan Ainsworth, but I was looking after the Andrew Lloyd Webber segment of that because it was while I was conducting Aspects of Love. And you, you were a script associate on that, weren't you? That's right. Oh, Gosh, I
0: didn't know. Oh, yeah, we yeah, yeah. see your information. This that it's that methodical brain of a of a musician and an MD <laughs> that, that that comes to the fore. There, my my scatterbrain, nonlinear thinking. But we first met physically uh, on. That, yeah, yeah, they was the sort of Brian Conley. Conley series, and once we bonded
1: immediately, didn't we? It was very strange uh which was strange strange for you <laughs> <A> strange love <laughs> no, it was. i mean it, it you know because yeah, i'm jobbing muso you know and there i was waving my arms around for the Connolly series and then and then there was this sort of mercurial chap writing all these clever quips and and stuff and i was f- fascinated with all that i well i i was one of many but i because
0: i'd been promoted by nigel lithgow the producer to the lofty position of associate producer on right. the ground, on the grounds that here's the joke coming, on the grounds that I was the only person that would associate with that producer. Okay, that's the joke. Okay. Yay, very good. Yeah, not true, not true. But um, but also, I was very aware of your fascination with comedy.
1: Completely. Yeah, I think my I think my three my three idols would be Phil Silvers, um, Eric Morecambe, hmm. and actually Andre Previn. In Morecambe and Wise, because his comedy <laughs> timing, his comedy timing was so extraordinary in that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to come to comedy timing or, the, or timing in a moment, if I may, because uh, my cards on the table. I became aware of MDs, musical directors, guys conducting the orchestra uh, when I was oh eight or nine watching Sunday nights at the London Palladium in the 60s. Uh, and I was very aware of Jack Parnell in the pit conducting the the Jack Parnell Orchestra. And I would get my mum's knitting needle and wave my baton in the air pretending to be an MD, because I thought that was very glamorous. But then I was clearly aware of the power of the musical director and the importance of the musical director. You being a musician, when did you first realise that you had an ear for music or a knack for music?
1: Well, I I suppose really quite early on, um, but, I mean, we didn't have a piano at home um, until I started. Well, there's a story about that, but uh, but uh, we didn't have a piano at home to begin with. But we had some relations who had a piano, and and apparently I used to, you know, reach up and touch these white and black things that yeah. made a noise when I was a toddler. And, um, and I always used to like that noise. And then, of course, when I got to primary school, a recorder was stuffed in my mouth, and, and like... Like you and I, in, in, in the sense, we can't remember when we learned to read and write. I can't remember when I learned to read music. Ah. Because it happened because it happened so when I was so young. So uh, and the recorder came very, very easily to me. And then I had this amazing uh, headmaster at my primary school, Drake Primary School down in Plymouth, and his name was Mr Parrish. And he used to play Mendelssohn's Fingal's Cave every morning before assembly. He was mm. he, he was fantastic, lovely wiry-haired man. And he said to me one day, he said, um, and I was about seven, six or seven. He said, Mike, I'm about to change my piano, and I'm going to make a little quiz for the school to see who would like a piano. Now I know you haven't got a piano, um, and just between us, you're going to win. <laughs> And uh, and we, were, you know, I was given a piano. Obviously, he spoke, but you know, he spoke to mum and dad and all the rest of it. And then I started having piano lessons with little Mrs Mitchell down the road for two and six a pop. Wow. You know, and that's what how it is. started. And then and then, you know, when I got to grammar school, music became rather more important. I had a fantastic teacher there called Trofaro, who was who was in his twenties and was making us listen to. Pink Floyd, as well as, uh, uh, as well as um, Richard Strauss and, um, you know, all that, which was absolutely fantastic. And so I did loads and loads of music at school. And that got me interested in, um, in theatre as well, because I started off by by doing a bit on the boards. And I did do, you know, a fair amount of, of actual performing, but I never really liked being facing the audience, if you like, I never really liked that bit. And then, I think it was in my sixth form i started you know working with trev on on the music for the shows that we were putting on and i rather enjoyed that because i because it was basically i had my back to the audience and i had my own group of people that i was playing for you know yeah. and being involved with and that was um, and that was that was the, that was the most attractive thing and then of course mm-hmm. got to college mm-hmm. and um and i specialized i mean i was a piano player um, but I specialised in piano accompaniment and 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 I did lots of French song and leader and English song as well, played for all sorts of wonderful people at college, so lovely singers and also lots of instrumentalists. And that got me, I said, yeah, and I got into amdrams and things while I was doing that and also playing for ballet classes. And that, I'm sorry, I'm going on. But <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I think I think it's fascinating because I love the DNA of, of
0: the progression of someone's career. I find that absolutely brilliant. So, so really what you're saying to me is that it was th- your interest in theatrical performance and accompanying musical. Artists who really inspired your move from a career pianist to becoming a musical director.
1: Well, I suppose so. I mean, I, I, I never was. I mean, obviously, I had to, to get into music college. I had to be of a certain standard. Mm. And I, I went to um, Trinity College of Music. There's the Royal Academy, the Royal College, Trinity. I, I got into the Royal Academy, but um, by the skin of my teeth, but I didn't actually want to go there. Mm. So I went to Trinity, which was a smaller building in, in Marlovan, um, and I had the best time there. So, so I suppose, yes,
0: is the answer. I remember we, you, me and Tony Nicholson, a mutual friend of ours, were walking around the back of Marylebone and you pointed out that's the college I went to.
1: That college is right. That's right. Which is no longer there. It's now in Greenwich. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah. But the building still exists. I'm just. But a couple
0: of blocks down the way. You then pointed to a shop, and it was kind of like Ollivander's, I think, from Harry Potter. And you said, that's the music shop where I've got my first bat on as
1: a conductor. Oh, that's right. It's an amazing place um, around the back of Oxford Circus called Guivier's. Mm-hmm. And and it and it specialises in uh, violin repairs and things like that. So you can buy a violin or get it repaired or cello or whatever. But there's a corner which is exactly like a wand. It is exactly like the The, the wand shop, and it's full of all these long batons. You know, it's fantastic. And you said how many did you buy? Oh, I think I bought ten or something. I'm still <laughs> using them. <laughs> and how many have how many how many have worn out? <laughs> no, well, actually, a few have worn. A few, ah. a few have worn out. I will. Well, the, it, 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 <laughs> I'm going back to 1989, right? Uh, now, now, you were t- you were talking about watching Jack Parnell conduct the orchestra, oh. so. 1989. Uh, my regular job, if you like, my my regular job was conducting aspects of love for Andrew Lloyd Webber, which was a you know one of the one of the big moments for me career wise and all that. Um, and uh, <laughs> and there was one show where I got I got so carried away with the, with a with a big downbeat with a big downbeat that I I, I threw my arm up into the air and then brought it back down with the downbeat without the baton in it. <laughs> and, and basically, the baton, the baton had sailed off into the audience behind me. Now, now, while I'm carrying on conducting the show, I'm thinking, oh, blow me down, what's going to happen? It, 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 have I have I impaled somebody like Harold at, at, at you know at Hastings <laughs> with my baton, and, and and so all this is going on in, in the back of my mind, and then and then about five minutes after it happened, there was a little tap on the shoulder. And the people who were sitting behind me gently handed the baton back to me for very reverentially.
0: <laughs> it was so funny,
1: and That's... there was no blood on it. There was no blood oh. on it, Cole. So it was all right. <laughs> Got away with that one. Because I've seen yeah, yeah.
0: You, I've seen you conduct in the West End. I've seen you conduct Greece. I've seen you conduct Footloose, uh, Joseph Lacage, and your style, I would say, is very expressive. It's very exuberant. Uh, it, it's almost as if. Conducting a West End show is like a physical workout for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to say it's almost as if you're having more fun than anyone else in the (laughs) theatre.
1: Well, it depends what show it is, (laughs) but yes. Yes. And, I, I, you know, Aspects of Love, particularly because it was a sung-through musical, so there was no, you know, you, you were waving the whole time. Mm. Um, that, that was uh, quite a workout every, every night. I mean, other shows, you know, Joseph, you have quite a, a few little moments. Um, um, but then there are things, actually, there's just, you know, when I was conducting Greece, um, there was a moment where, um, I think it was about three months into the show, and we were on Greece. The band was came down and was in the front of the stage at times. But a lot, most of the time we were on a truck that went right back to the back of the stage. Mm, I remember. And, um, and and there was a curtain that came in. It felt like we were being in a studio. <laughs> now, what do musos do when there's a bit like five minutes between they they read or they play games or they do silly things? So, so I was in the middle of a snook—not uh, a snooker game—I was in the middle of a Scrabble game <laughs> with three other people in the band. Okay, and 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 I and I'm looking at my Scrabble board, knowing right in front of me I've got a TV monitor of the stage, and beside me I've got two speakers, two uh, loudspeakers with what's going on on stage happening. So I, you know, I should not be disconnected. Mm. They, there's also a camera on me so that the stage can see me. OK, so there's yeah. a because there's a monitor out the front. So that picture the scene, I am playing this game of Scrabble thinking I've got a seven letter word. It's like I'm going to I'm going to whop the rest of the band with this one. I'm going to whop. <laughs> and then suddenly the bass player, Joe Meacham, went Mike, Mike, Mike. And I, and I looked around and saw this lovely girl, Charlotte Avery, on stage speaking the words of Freddie, my love. And I suddenly realized, oh, no, oh, no. So I, again, you know, threw my hands up in the air threw the, and, and went, we're, we're in, we're in, you know. And we came crashing in. And poor Charlotte, basically, had got to the queue line, looked up and could see that I wasn't paying any attention. <laughs> and after about five seconds, she went, do you know what? I'd better just speak the words. So in the interval, I ran because I thought, you know, I've got to apologise. I mean, this is just—I mean, this is appalling, appalling, appalling. So I ran, ran, ran up to her dressing room on the third floor, knocked on the door, threw myself on the floor, prostate on the floor, and went—and and, 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 and went—prostate. Did I just say? Prostrate. <laughs> yes. Threw myself on the floor, prostrate. And, sa- and, sha- and, and said, uh, uh, Charlotte, Charlotte, Mayor Corporal, Mayor Corporal, I'm so, so, so sorry. I mean, uh, obviously she was moderately angry, but I did take the wind out of her sails by behaving in that, you know, and, 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 and she did forgive me quite yeah. quickly. But she's a good, but, old oh, pro, good old pro. Yeah, good old pro, good old pro, exactly. And
0: I hadn't realised, of course, oh, I've, I've talked about the power of the MD, the musical director, over uh, the orchestra. But, of course, you have enormous control over the performers on stage as well. Well, oh, yeah, that they follow your cues. So really, you're driving the an entire stage musical uh, with your baton and a look. Uh, and I, th- I find that to be daunting, quite
1: frankly. Which, well, what I, but it's funny when, when when you're in a long run, you know, because there was a period of time when I did. I think I did two years on Aspects of Love, two years on Joseph, and then two years on Greece. Mm. Like six, six years of like solid, near enough every night in the West End conducting a show. Mm. And what I used to find was that, because tempos are always a, 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 a quagmire of, of, you know, is it the right tempo? Are they feeling the tempo the same way as I am? Is it emotionally doing what it should do? The te- you know, the, the driving, if you like, of the show. What I used to do was I would gradually speed up the show during the week. Just a tittle, yeah. just a tittle. So so that so that by the by the Saturday when they've all they've all got to their eighth show, mm. by the Saturday you're a little, you know, the, the show is maybe a minute to a minute and a half quicker overall. The three oh, hours. That's interesting. So so um, and I found, and then you and then of course you'd reset on the Monday and go back to the to, to you know, the more staid tempos mm-hmm. and get everybody used to the show again. And it, it's, it's one of those weird things that's never, 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 never taught, nor should it ever be taught, but, but it really, bizarrely, psychologically works for the cast. So you can up click
0: it up a gear by a wave of the baton? You can, uh, I might say, I don't know what I'm talking about now because I know nothing about music as well, you know, but if it says three, four time on the stave, you can click it up half a gear?
1: Well you can yeah, if you think about beats per minute and and you know a, a, a disco beat at like one three eight bpm beats per minute um, and then then and you can generally you know a, a nice slow ballad would be like a, a, a beat per second, mm-hmm. in other words, sixty bpm or thereabouts, so over a period of a week, I'd gently up that 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 ballad even to sixty five. On so, on an on an overall scale, you
0: know? yeah.
1: I mean, I mean, obviously, I'm talking about um, tiny, tiny amounts, but enough enough to. Um, and people do, you know. Even though frequently you see an orchestra not really looking at the conductor, mm. they are using that magical thing called peripheral vision because mm. they're looking at the dots, and in the uh, you know, the, and and they're also watching what what he's doing. Yeah or she, you know, with, with with the baton. And so, yes, you can. You can just edge it, edge it up a notch. Interesting. You know. I, I, that's
0: glorious. I, I see, I, you, I, I'm, I'm floundering here because I really, uh, the, the world of music is something that I much appreciate but actually don't understand, n- not having a musical bone in my body.
1: The, it's all smoker mirrors, you know. Oh,
0: oh, <laughs> thank you, sir. Steam
1: smoke, steam smoke and mirrors. Sometimes. <laughs> thank you, sir, for that very subtle uh, <laughs> plug,
0: which is much appreciated. <laughs> so, which prompts that? No, I tell you what prompts me to think. You mentioned Andrew Lloyd Webber and aspects of love, so you're standing at the pedestal. In front of 50 immensely talented musicians, you've got Andrew Lloyd Webber sitting in the stalls with his arms folded and his legs crossed, saying, Okay, show us what you've got.
1: That must be daunting, surely. Well, yeah. I mean, aspects, aspects particularly was one of those. weird situations, because I was originally booked as assistant musical director. In other words, I was sitting in the pit playing keyboards and would conduct one show a week. That was the plan. Mm. Um, and Mike Reed was the musical supervisor, and he conducted up to the opening night, so he conducted previews and opening night, and then there was somebody else who was going to take over as musical director. Now, that's someone else, and I won't say his name here on on, on your podcast, but that's someone else didn't really get it, and the orchestra and the cast all found that they weren't connecting with this person. He was connecting with the front of the stage in front of him, Hmm. where he was, you know, aiming everything, but he wasn't connecting with the people above on the stage or the people below in the pit. And eventually, after like a week or two weeks of this, um, there were words um, had, and he was gently removed from the show i was then asked on the corner of the street um by the then uh, head of really useful group if i would take over uh and and hold the fort and you know see how it goes and i went to of course absolutely mm-hmm. i would love to and then I, and then i had to conduct my first show and i remember be, frequently in shows you you're standing in Prompt Corner with the stage manager, and when everybody's ready and all the doors are closed and all the rest of it, the the stage manager sends you downstairs. Now, a a lot of the time now, I mean, this is like, you know, 1989, but a lot of the time now, they use various, you know, lights and and, and, and buttons and stuff, so you're in the pit. But Mm -hmm. on Aspects, it wasn't. You were in the wings waiting. And then I had to. So, so stage manager says, "Right, Mike, ready to go, off you go." So I r- walked down the the little walkway down under the stage, and then there were like four or five steps to get me into the back of the pit, and then to walk into the pit and onto the podium and in front of the the the, the band. Well, those four steps, I I I um. What what is the 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 the, uh, the the walk to the scaffold in the Dickens um, uh, Tale of Two Cities? You know, it is a far far better thing. That it felt like I was so scared, I was so scared. It really did feel like I was. This was my, you know, make or break, if you like. I mean, obviously not a scaffold, but um, but it felt like that. But but career wise, it was pivotal. Well, I suppose it was, yeah, because then. Because actually, after that, and I got on so well with Andrew. After that, I did Joseph, and then the the the, the, the re the re-examined um, uh, Jesus Christ superstar, but, but um in 1996. So, yeah.
0: So you were involved with aspects from the get-go, and so many musicals. I'll come to an import uh, another important one in a moment. But in a rehearsal room, when you're at the piano, and you're in a church hall with all the, the tape on the floor laid out. For the actors who are in their scrubs going through their stuff can you tell at the piano if this is this 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 one's gonna fly
1: this is brilliant i'd love to say yes i'd love oh my goodness i'd love to say yes no (laughs) (laughs) the one of the things that you can tell in the rehearsal room in the very last couple of days is you can tell whether the show is good what you can't ever tell is whether it will be successful subtle difference That's that that fine fine line hmm. and and so there are a number of shows that i've done where where everything's stripped away in the rehearsal room because it is literally the actors um maybe a few a few bits of wood you know bang together to make a little prop or whatever but it's basically the actors and piano and and everybody watching the show in its barest form and of course it does give you the sense of what the piece is mm. so you know yeah I, I I'd love to I, well goodness me I mean that's the the, the 64 million dollar question that, that every theater producer wants to know you know how, how can you make sure that something is a hit I, I who knows you know. I, I mean i, I thought i stay sorry, seriously sorry to interrupt you i i didn't i didn't think as uh, now dame Marlene phillips of course dame Marlene. um i uh, on greece I, and david gilmore the director the three of us basically thought we'd have a three month maybe six month run you know, and that show lasted in, in the West End in various iterations for um, 12 years, I think, and then went on and you know, carried on doing its tour. And, and, and I think it overall ran for 18, 20 years, something like that. So you have no idea.
0: I have an endless fascination with show business in that people with enormous talent and huge, a history of huge success can still get it wrong. It's almost as if there's a strange atmosphere, that, or a smoke which descends on the theatre, and it's just out of kilter, you know. Mm-hmm. Like writing a joke, Mike. You know, you think, yeah, that should get a laugh, and when it doesn't, you think, well, what the hell? What, what's wrong with that? Because the equation's there, but somehow it doesn't balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is so weird, isn't it? it, it, it uh... Did you did you find that you were in the presence of greatness? Uh, when the musical, the Queen musical, We Will Rock You was being put together.
1: Yes, I absolutely 100% did. Mm. Um, And although the show opened in 2002, I had my first meeting about the show in the summer of 2001. And I had a meeting with Brian May, the original director, Chris Renshaw, and the manager of Queen, Jim Beach. And I came back from the meeting to my lovely wife, Natalie, and said, well, I think, you know, the meeting went quite well, but I've got no way of knowing whether, you know, they're going to ask me to do it. No way of knowing. Brian was lovely. Um, you know, they, they, they made all the right noises, but I don't know. Anyway, spool on four weeks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And because just like actors and other people in our jolly old business, um, you don't get told straight away and you're left on hooks, waiting to find out whether you've got the job or not and uh, lo and behold 4 weeks later a phone call from my then agent the uh, the wonderful Tim Hancock um and uh Tim said mike are you sitting down and, yeah yeah i am now he said right they want you to do it they want you to do the queen musical we will rock you so <laughs> natalie and i came into the, the 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 music room dining room music room with the big speakers and everything and we put bohemian rhapsody on as loud as we possibly could and headbang to it all excited which which goes to st- it's it's a, a lovely a lovely actress many 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 moons ago lovely actress called Judith barker when i was doing a show called handicap with um, alan price and trevor peacock she said to me and i was like early 20s she said mike she said do you know the best part of any job is the moment you get told you've got it and you think about it, and you yeah. go, actually, yeah, because yeah. from there on, it's all, it, it, yes, of course, there will be highs and lows, but essentially, that moment when you get told you're 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 doing it, say, yes, that's amazing, and then of course, it's all the hard work to put it together and all the, you know, yes. the the poli- yeah. political the, the shenanigans yeah. that go with it. So, Basically, yeah. yeah, you do think, oh, I've got to do it now. Absolutely, absolutely. But working with Brian and Roger, and I, I worked really closely with them. Um, in in the putting together of the show working with them was was a dream and and it's funny they are two sides of the same coin roger and brian roger roger is rock star personified and and very very general and very um uh yeah you know right on and and you know yeah Proper rock star, you know, hmm. yacht, all that stuff.
0: Roger Taylor, yeah. And Brian, name.
1: absolutely, and and, and uh, you know, fast fast girls and 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 speedy cars, you hmm. know, or or speedy cars and fi- whatever the right. Yeah you, yeah. yeah, you you could make a joke at that. <laughs> anyway, um, and then Brian is soft spoken, gentle, analytical, sometimes analytical to to the point of. Do we have to go in that far? Do we have to go that deep into this to, to work this out? Yeah. You know, but he he gets amazing results because of that. And on the very first day of rehearsals um, for, for um, uh, We Will Rock You, we were... You know the 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 thirty six in the cast and and all the, the production team. We'd gone through the set in the first uh, and read through the script in the f- in the morning, um, and then the afternoon was over to me. And Roger and Brian were very worried about Bohemian Rhapsody, or Bo Rap as we call it, mm-hmm. and they were worried about Bo Rap because when they had recorded it in nineteen seventy five. They had obviously layered and layered and layered all those amazing vocals and Freddie, you know, principal um, um, vocal, but funnily enough, it's Roger who sings the really high stuff. Anyway, they were really worried. They were really, really worried that, that would I be able to get a cast of West End Lovelies to be able to sound okay singing Bohemian Rhapsody? And I said, well, I'm pretty sure I can. You know, I, mm. might be it might take a little bit of work, but I'm pretty sure I can. So, of course, they made sure that that was the first thing that I taught the company on that on that afternoon, that Monday afternoon. And Roger, this is the the, the actual point of all this. Within half an hour, Roger was at the door, waving with a thumb up, saying, "Fab, I'm got, I'm off now." He was really happy. Brian oh. stayed the whole afternoon sat beside me went through you know started working out because brian does read music as well so i mean it's it, it, it takes a little while you know it's, he's not fluid fluent, fluent but mm-hmm. but he does you know he does read so 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 you know i was able to say now is it this is the chord that I think it should be, or this is the, the voicing that I think this chord should be for you know, this little section, what do you think? And he would go into quite a lot of detail and go, well, I sang this note, and and uh, and Roger sang that, and Freddie sang that, and you know, so it was absolutely fascinating.
0: And fantastic at the same time. Uh, while I think of it, you're in the presence of Brian May and Roger Taylor, people that you've known all your life, from those black discs yeah. that you used to play suddenly you're in their company do you ever get starstruck
1: completely oh yeah 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 good. absolutely one one hundred percent um uh, uh and and here's he a for instance of that i was doing dr doolittle we did a we did it in 1998 at the hammersmith apollo phillips gofield playing doolittle and uh, and i this was when I first met Leslie Brickus, and, and Leslie knows just about everybody, just right. about everybody there has ever been in the business. To the point that he tells a story of being taken by Beatrice Lilly to um, Broadway and Beatrice Lilly said to him, Leslie, I'm going to, in- I'm going to introduce you to somebody today, but I want you to be at this particular place, this particular time. I'll meet you there uh, and I'm not going to tell you who it is. So Leslie gets taken uh, to this place, goes to the concierge. Hello, I'm Leslie Brickus. Oh, yes, Leslie, you're, you're expected. Uh, Mr Brickus, you're expected. Go into that lift, go up to the top and walk along the corridor. The lift is full of plush, plush carpet. The corridor is, is like a, a, a liner corridor with a, with a great bay window at the front, chaise long, facing into the bay window, mm. and, and a, a, a cigarette lighter our cigarette lighter a cigarette holder mm-hmm. with a little spume of, of smoke coming off it and leslie walked down the corridor was met by b lily who and and the man in the shade long turned around and b lily said leslie this is cole porter oh. and so 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 leslie you know when you meet leslie you're you're completely in 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 you know, this is major royalty because there is not anybody who's anybody from the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties that Leslie doesn't know and hasn't met or worked with. It's extraordinary, extraordinary. Oh. So there's that one, but then when we were doing Doolittle, Leslie said, Well, It would be really nice if we got, um, because we had all these animatronics uh, from the Henson, uh, uh, you know, Mm. people. Absolutely amazing things, absolutely amazing things. And we had a a, 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 um, Polynesia, the parrot, was an extraordinary bit of kit. But Leslie said, well, why don't I have a word with Julie Andrews, with my pal Julie? (laughs) and see and yeah i know you could see my face if this was on video you'd see my face going (laughs) uh, but but yeah why don't we have uh i'll have a conversation with julie and see whether she would record polynesia so so there was um there were two or three days the first day she came in and was with um the company uh sort of getting to know everybody and and there was a point where she was sitting beside me on the piano and um, and we were just gently because her voice had, at this point she'd had the operation it had all gone wrong so there's no not no voice but it's fine for being a parrot <laughs> for making that sort of noise yes so so there is there is 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 well I think it is another Dame isn't it I think she's Dame Yes, Julie she is, yeah. so um so there's there's Julie Andrews sitting beside me and I and I, I I just stopped what I was doing and I I just looked at her and I said I'm so sorry I said I've just got to I've just got to say this you're julie andrews and i'm just me and 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 she was so gorgeous and generous and lovely and she oh don't be silly don't, let's carry, you know she was really lovely yeah so yes so the answer, the long the long-winded answer to your question is yes i am still starstruck
0: i'm so pleased to hear that uh and I, it, squares with a conversation I had with someone a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that when you shake hands with Mike Dixon ladies and gentlemen you're shaking hands with the man that sat next to Julie Andrews but also the man who shook hands with the man who shook hands with Cole Porter yeah that is just fantastic
1: yeah I I love the whole uh, handshake thing is one of my one of my things and and and, Mm. you know if you shake hands with the queen then you're one handshake away from uh, Kennedy, you know, yes. uh, uh, millions and millions and millions of people. Yes. Um, if you, you know, working with Dame Shirley Bassey, I'm one handshake away from Elvis when, you, when you're when you with Dame Shirley. Yeah. Is she... You know you think about that i love that sort of ha- the, the the five handshakes of separation or whatever you know
0: <laughs> I, I find that fascinating and the hope that maybe okay you've washed your hands but maybe some of that dna is still there well know?
1: exactly exactly <laughs> yeah i can get back to mozart in five handshakes whoa okay
0: there's a pause there because yeah, that's my jaw there's a pa-
1: i know i know now now the reason is I can and I can remember the names of the first couple, but but one of my teachers at music college who was very old uh, was a lady called Gladys Puttick, fantastic, fantastic, almost Victorian name, and she was a Victorian sort of, you know, twin set and pearls type lady, yes, and little 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 glasses. Now now Gladys Puttick came to see me playing um, some Brahms. And after after she'd seen the concert, she came up to me and my piano teacher, lovely man called Anthony Lindsay, and she said, "It was just like when I was a little girl seeing Brahms playing." Okay, so so she, so Gladys <laughs> Puttick gets me to Brahms. Okay, so me Gladys Puttick Brahms, yes. and then and then Brahms was taught by somebody who was taught by um, um, Mozart. One of Mozart's pupils, and then that gets you to Mozart. <laughs> but it's five—you are know, they're, they're names that you haven't heard, you know, because I can't—I actually can't remember them now. But but it's still I can work it out, and I could write it down. It's five handshakes, essentially, back to Mozart. That's beautiful, uh, which is wondering. nice because he—I I share a birthday. You know that 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 the, the, the lovely serendipitous things. I share a birthday with two giants. I share a birthday with Mozart. Mm-hmm. And and um, um, I was going to say cold water there, but it's not cold water. It's the man who wrote "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes." So Jerome Kern. So Mozart and Jerome Kern. I we're both born we're well, all three of us are born on the twenty seventh of January. I mean I know that there are a million, 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 million other people who are born on the twenty seventh of January. But for me, as a as a little, you know, um uh, jobbing jobbing waiver of batons, um, it's fantastic to know that that Mozart and Jerome Kirtan are my pals. That's like. lovely. That's
0: lovely. It's serendipitous as you say. I love that kind of stuff. I you, spinning back very quickly because it's a a nice puff for you uh you won the helpman award for best musical direction for we will rock you along with so many other awards. how did you land the the queen musical was it just a phone call out the blue or did you know someone
1: well it was that that was that phone call um i think i think there was there was there were whispers that this musical was going to happen and i said to tim Oh, God, I'd love to do that. I'd absolutely love to do that. And and he made some inquiries and and I then was asked to go and, you know, have an interview. And that's kind of how it happened. But you mentioning the Helpman Award, you know, that, that's the Australian equivalent of the Olivier's. Mm. Now, one of one of my big bugbears over the last 10 years or so, as I sort of got to, to a slightly um, higher position, if you like, is is gently pointing out to the major uh the the major competitions in this country they don't have a musical director award so i could never get an Olivier because there isn't a musical director award Mm. i could never get a what's on stage award because look not that i want one but it's not about that it's about the fact that that there's no there wasn't any recognition Anyway, I did manage to, um, uh, I did a lot of lobbying with some other pals um, of the Oliviers and there is now a a sort of musician-type award, but it's still not musical director per se. Mm. Um, And the off West End Awards, they did the whole hog, they went the whole hog and there is a proper musical director award. Which is great, and I'm I'm the sort of patron saint of that award. So um, so so you know that that those are good things. But no, sadly in this country, the Olivier's well actually, and um, and the Tonys, the Tonys don't recognise musical director either. And I've always found it so frustrating because. In the rehearsal room, when you're putting a show together, there's a kind of triumvirate. And I mean, yes, of course, there are design, you know, there's a lighting designer and a, and a sound designer and a costume designer. And of course, those people are humongously important. But the actual people who, who, who as a trio, if you like, put the show on and teach the show to the cast mm. and work out with the cast how the show is gonna go, is the director and his two acolytes the choreographer and the musical director
0: yeah you drive
1: the and thing yeah 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 so that has been a little bit of a bugbear of mine i i can understand
0: that once again it's the power of the musical director that i appreciated as a as a kid uh, and, yeah okay, no. um you and i worked together on the wireless um, we have or bbc radio 2's friday night is music night mm. where you were you one of the go-to musical directors of the bbc concert orchestra on Friday Night's Music Night. And oddly enough, we didn't get together very often, but we did on one occasion when Paul O'Grady was hosting uh, Friday Night's Music Night. And okay, this, accept this smoke because it's coming your way. One of <laughs> the highlights of my life, other than personal stuff, is watching you on that dais conducting the BBC Concert Orchestra. Mm playing the theme from the Avengers that I uh, I'm not given to emotion but there was a tear in my eye because I thought this is all the stars coming together this is just why Catherine was with me a friend of mine called Tony Bruce uh, uh, right, and Danny right. his partner and we just sat there in absolute awe it was it was a blissful moment because Mike uh you don't you you maybe become blase about this because there's nothing like a 60 piece orchestra blasting you in the face is there oh, absolutely
1: Absol- absolutely I, I and and i still i mean obviously with the pandemic and everything i've i've hardly done anything in in you know with an orchestra um since i think i the last one was a uh, um at the palladium just before lockdown and we did a bridge over troubled water special yeah, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Um, and that was another, you know, that was a Friday night of music night. But there is nothing like standing in front of a, a, a parade of immense talent, because any orchestra is, is, is made up of extraordinarily talented people. All the people who get a job in an orchestra have to be the best, Mm. Even even the, the 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 on the fourth row of the of the violins, right at the back, yeah. they all have to be able to go. I mean, essentially, you know, when they were at music college or or in their training, they would have all been, you know, at their schools and stuff, the best soloists there were, and then they end up in an orchestra. So and then the thing is, they've got to all play together, and it's the most extraordinary thing. And I always remember. Whenever I'm standing in front of them, the, the, the baton doesn't make a noise. It's them. Oh, what a beautiful thing to say.
0: I didn't realise that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to think. It's like they have to trust me. To to deliver them, you know, the tempo that we've done in rehearsal, or or, 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 and the feeling that we've done in rehearsal, Mm. but but essentially that baton does not make a noise except when it goes into the eye of somebody in the background.
0: (laughs) Lovely callback, (laughs) sir. I I tip my top hat. That's that's lovely. (laughs) So you once told me that Ronnie Wood. The great Ronnie Wood from the Rolling Stones, one of my heroes, uh, came along to a Friday Night's music night rehearsal and was
1: hugely impressed. He was. He was there because he was about to marry uh, a lovely girl called Sally Humphreys, who's now Sally Wood. And um, Sally Humphreys was best pals with one of the best orchestrators that I know, a young man, uh, well, younger than me but he was a very very young man when i first met him chris egan and chris is uh a, a, an extraordinarily innate musician uh, immense talent and can 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 write i mean he's he's orchestrated a lot of my stuff and some of the, the royal variety themes and things like that he he orchestrated and and um and various things down the you know down the years he is Fantastic. Anyway, Chris and Sally knew each other as kids and they were part of a scheme in Birmingham to find bright young things in the, in the music industry. Mm. And, uh, and so Chris has known Sally for years and years and he said, Sally, come along. And Sally was kind of dating Ronnie Wood at this point. So she brought, she brought Ronnie in. Mm. And, and he loved it. He did love it. He did love it. Yeah, He was, like, amazed. And didn't he
0: say to you, because basically it's, it's how impressive those BBC Concert Orchestra musicians are, didn't he say to you something about rehearsals? And you said, you said you said to him, actually, this is probably the first time that some of these users have, have actually seen the dance. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: He was completely banjaxed by the fact that they were reading it for the first time, which I think lots of people are. You know um, on a you know on a Friday night is music night you you might have a rehearsal the day before and then a rehearsal on the day but frequently you just have one rehearsal on the day mm-hmm. you know if it's a very very complicated one then you you might have two rehearsals, but lots of the time you have one three-hour rehearsal to re- to rehearse a two-hour concert. And some of the music that is put in front of them and some of the music that's put in front of me, none of us know. So we, we you know, and, and, and you have to be able to adapt. And certainly as a musician and, and the rank and file, it, you know, the, the, the players themselves have got to be able to play at the very, very top of their game. Mm. You know, they and they can read yeah. and make sense of something amazingly quickly. And that, I think, when when people watch that and witness it mm. for the first time, it, I mean, it does frequently sound like, oh, they've been playing that for years. Yeah. Well, they might have played. Yeah, might have. You know, a few of them might have played it. Yes. But they haven't played it together before. Yes. And and a lot of them won't have seen the music before they sat in front of it. Because Friday Night is Music Night has
0: been on the air for decades. I think um, the, the listenership <clears throat> become blasé about it. Uh, you work very closely with Bridget Apps. And your our, our mutual friend, Anthony Cherry, and I, I got to write about a dozen of those, and you got to MD dozens of them. Uh, and mm. I, th- I think we we lose sight of the fact that that Friday Night is Music Night was such a significant contribution to the world of music, which I think maybe is lost in the mists of time now. People come blasé about it.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, I mean, I I did my first one or 2001 i think it was my first one for for the the legendary alan boyd oh yes uh, yeah, yeah so not my fir- not my that first, one yeah. not that one the scottish one the the other scottish one yes yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> yes. So so and i did i think i did my first like half dozen with alan yeah before before bridget got involved Jodie jody keen and then finally um anthony cherry yes um but yeah i and and, and i Looking back, it, it's a treasure for me that I've done so many of the Friday nights. Yeah. And I've done some fantastically weird ones as well. You know, I've managed to conduct um, William Walton's Spitfire Overture with a real Spitfire just outside the hangar that we were recording in, in Biggin Hill, firing up at the same time as I was conducting it.
0: Yeah, that was that was the World War a series of World War Two commemorations. That's Um, right.
1: Yeah, uh, it was the Battle of Britain one.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then there was a a great series of that because all coinciding with the seventy fifth anniversary of various aspects of of World War Two, and there was a series that you were hugely involved in, and they were minute by minute representations of the actual event. <clears throat> Which then went, went on to award. I think it was
1: driven by Phil Critchlow and Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan Mayo, yes, Simon Mayo's brother, absolutely, yeah. yes absolutely. Um, and uh, and and I think the first one that we did was was Titanic, minute by minute. Hmm. And um, and we did that not with a big orchestra. There was just a small, like six piece. We were essentially being the band that. That stayed playing, you know, as the ship went down on the deck. Um, yeah. But we did, we did, um, and it was that was the first time of meeting Jeremy Vine and uh, and Dermot, uh, and and, and they were Rayway. basically, yeah. yeah, they were basically reading the whole event and the and, and, and with with um, lots of documentation and lots of pre-recorded bits and bobs, but with live music interspersed, mm. um, and following the actual timeline of 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 you know the titanic and what happened to it that became the first one i mean it developed it, it was amazing the, the the battle of britain one that we did the, which was um the one in in biggin hill in the mm-hmm. huge hangar we did we did um, d-day at the royal arbor hall and i think that was the one that patrick stewart played winston churchill yes i think I, it was
0: it was because i've got a vivid memory of Sir Patrick Stewart looking to Mike Dixon, waiting yes. for his cue. <laughs> well, there's another, there's
1: another like, wah moment for me, you know, this is, this is, you know, Jean-Luc Picard, you know, yes. I did get a selfie. I did get a selfie with Patrick Stewart. I did get done. a I was, uh, Yeah, absolutely had to be done. And he was so generous and lovely, really lovely man.
0: Isn't it sad in our lifetimes that uh, mobile phones have developed to such an extent that we've got cine uh, television cameras and stills cameras on our phones the snaps that we could have taken early on in our careers of the people that we've met oh i
1: know i know i know i think about that sometimes and think i, I mean i've got some great pictures now you know but but there would have been oh my goodness me some of those early things that that, uh, that yeah. i did you've traveled but. the world with miss world as well <laughs> yes when i was growing up there were there were there were like three major TV shows that I um, I kind of I didn't, I didn't aspire to, but I was like they were they're amazing. Wouldn't it be incredible if I was involved in them somehow? I think was going on in the back of my head, but who oh. knows? And that was Miss World, the Royal Variety Show, and Eurovision. And and I've done all three. Yeah, I mean I've done the Royal a, a few times, which is great. Yeah. I've done Eurovision once, and we came tenth. Which we're is good, a good cool. result, actually. Yeah, we're a good result nowadays, mm. yeah, absolutely. But this was 1995, I think, and we came 10th. We were favourites, but we came 10th. Uh, Love City Groove, great little great little sort of, um, mm. you know, yeah. w- weird and wonderful piece. Um, and then, of course, Miss World. And in 2000, and I think it was 2003, it was just after I'd done, after Rock You had opened, and I'd already been involved in Pop Idol. And one of the producers of another show that I've done, uh, Peter Usher, was producing Miss World in China. And he phoned me and said, Mike, we're, we're trying to up the game on Miss World. They always do a talent show, but they don't really do it very well, or they don't make a thing of it. We're going to make a thing of it. Would you come out and look after it? So that's what I did. And and um, um, and while I was there doing this the, the, the talent show, um, I was asked by um, the Miss World peeps um i was literally just on my way to get uh, on the plane uh and they said oh mike we've got a problem with the walk down music is there any way you can help and they'd had somebody was writing the music and they'd had it all delivered to them you know on tapes and all the rest of it and it it just wasn't doing what they wanted it to do and um and i said well i could have a yeah i mean I, i i've got my little keyboard rig with me so i could try and make something what do you want so i did an overnight um delivered it to um uh, the choreographer in the morning uh, eight o'clock before i then went on on the plane to get back to to london so i delivered it you know in in mp3 form if you like and said look is this okay is this the type of thing you want and they went yes that's brilliant that's perfect that's perfect that's perfect if you could finish it and then send it you know um email it over or whatever so that's what i did following year they asked me to look after all the music for this world and so on and so on and then yeah. i gradually i gradually inveigled my way in and i'm now a judge as well you know so um it's it's most bizarre but i but i love the i love the whole bonkersness of 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 the event and you know it has taken me to some extraordinary places including um you know inner mongolia uh and yeah. south africa and if all goes well, it will be taking me to Puerto Rico this coming year, if all goes well. So, yeah.
0: I think it's lovely that that a big production like Miss World can suddenly find itself with moments to go thinking, oh, we need this. We're sent for Mike. <laughs> I, I just love well, yeah, that. I, so it.
1: That was that was the most bizarre moment. That was the most bizarre moment actually, and I did get I did sort of you know regain my sleep um, on the trip back.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it, so it was literally uh, flying by the city of pants. Literally, wasn't oh, it? Oh yeah.
1: Compl- oh, literally, absolutely, literally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm aware of your time and uh, and um, how uh, precious. Uh, this chat is to me, so I'm going to ask two more questions, if I may. First of all, I'm going to ask what it was like with Dame Shirley Bassey playing Glastonbury.
1: Mm-hmm. What well, was that like? Well, so 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 Dame Shirley, we we've been involved since 2005 on the Royal Variety, and and um, and then and that which went really well, uh, apart from her coming up late from under the stage but that's another story and a longer story Hmm. for another time Um, and uh, and so so I get the call to say look we're going to do Glastonbury or Dame Shirley's been asked to do Glastonbury what do you think what you mean Glastonbury with our full orchestra like you know 25 or 28 piece whatever it was well yeah yeah uh, and Glastonbury is normally, you know, a rock band or, or you know, it, it's not usually a 28-piece, a um, <clears throat> you know, load of jobbing musos. Mm-hmm. So um, so we worked out a way of doing it, which was absolutely brilliant. And obviously, you know, the, the the great general public would never know this. But we rehearsed in a place in Islington for a couple of days beforehand with somebody in a little room off the little studio that we were rehearsing in with the actual sound desk that was then taken down to Glastonbury mm. so we rehearsed they organised what the, the basic on stage sound for everybody and then th- what the sound was going to be like in in the you know for the for the for the for the crowd mm-hmm. that sound desk was taken down plugged in with all its memories you know intact and we went on without any sound check at the venue. Now, normally you would always do a sound check. You would always do a sound check at the venue and make sure that everything's okay. Yeah. But for Glastonbury, because of the time frame and all the rest of it, there is no chance of doing that. So everybody has to go in completely cold. So us having this sound desk that was already loaded up, was genius because it just meant that we could hear in our in ears you know mm. in our things you know the headphones or whatever we had exactly what we had in the rehearsal room fantastic what was but it Dan like- Shirley was i mean don't but i you know i on that Glastonbury thing i that one is i suppose the one where i go i if i had to say that is there one thing that that you go um uh it's the most amazing, it, it, then that was the one. That that Glastonbury, doing Glastonbury was the most amazing thing. Um, but Dame Shirley, um, you know, arriving in a, in a helicopter with her Diamante uh, Wellington boots, mm-hmm. Natalie and I, we drove into Glastonbury in my car, at the time, a black Alfa Romeo, and we drove through a quagmire of chocolate-like mud Mm. all the way down to the side of Pyramid Stage where we parked up and my dressing room was in between the one that was marked Dame Shirley Bassey and The Who. (laughs) So my one was in the middle of those two it was extraordinary so so natalie natalie i managed to get natalie um she was on stage um because there's a sort of raised platform at the back of the stage where people look in mm. and uh, so she was able to see it from there which was absolutely fantastic and um you look you know i mean most of the time i'm looking forward obviously into the, the band and looking at dane shirley but just a few times i did look out and see this you know, it, uh, it, the, the feeling from 70,000 people all screaming and shouting, you know, is absolutely extraordinary. It really is amazing. Wonderful,
0: wonderful experience. Getting on to lockdown, you, which has afflicted so many people in so many different ways, uh, you did not rest on your laurels. You put together uh, an album of piano pieces uh, and it. We can listen to it. I'll, 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 you, I'll you can give, tell me the details in, the, in a moment, please, Mike. It's called Mike Dixon at the Piano Lockdown Recordings. And I must admit, I've listened to this for such a long time because I find it immensely meditative. And it's you at the piano playing an eclectic range of wonderful music, including Misty, uh, including uh, A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square, but classical pieces too. Yeah, yeah, not off-putting classical pieces, uh, and I have to say it—it it is mesmerisingly beautiful because you're playing the clarity of each individual note, and I'm a great fan of piano players like Rick Wakeman and Jules Holland, and the clarity sure. of your playing is just breathtaking.
1: Oh, well, that's really kind. I mean, I, yeah, I. I once, once lockdown started, I thought, "What am I going to do?" And I was, uh, you know, working on some stuff with my younger daughter because uh, we did a, a little Instagram live thing. Mm, I called, remember seeing that you and Meg Sun, yeah, singing. So, yes, yeah. absolutely, Sunday lockdown with Meg. But no, I, I started recording because I thought it would be really nice for the kids to have a record of Dad playing because I don't, you know, I used to do lots of playing, but in the past twenty odd years with baton in hand, mm. I've hardly done any playing. So, so I was a bit rusty and a bit you know like oh about time I got my chops back together Mm -hmm. and so I so that's why there's there's a bit of Beethoven and there's a bit of actually there's a bit of William Walton in there as well popular song but I it was um yes it was it was I really enjoyed sort of putting it together and I've now got I've got about three hours of me you know all sorts of pieces me playing the piano but at the moment I've just got that one uh, little album release, Mike at the piano, yeah. the lockdown recordings, which you can get on Spotify and Amazon Music and uh, Apple.
0: And yeah. I, like, I would urge anyone, anyone at all, to download that because, quite honestly, it, it's uh, an hour of your life beautifully well spent.
1: Well, that is very, very kind of you. I tell you what, I, the other thing that I have, I started at the end of this, uh, just after Christmas a couple of people had said to me Mike wouldn't it be a good idea if you wrote wrote down you know some of the things that that have gone on Mm. and so I did think well maybe maybe it's time for me to you know write the the autobiography so I have started it and I'm um i'm about ninety ninety three and a half thousand words in, which is Blimey. equivalent of equivalent of about three hundred pages now i think so and i'm about to i'm about two thousand eight around about two thousand and eight so i've got I've got a little bit more to do i'm trying to sort of get it finished i think it'll be more like the end of July now so I try and get a, between five hundred and a thousand words a day
0: That's and then very- and then of course
1: it's all going to be edited and you
0: know all that as you know but the discipline of of that wordage per day is impressive
1: it's that's that's rather like terry pratchett you know uh, uh, and that kind of well that's really kind but i mean i think it's easier when it's you know because it's not i'm not i'm not making something up i'm just you know writing down the thoughts that i had as i was doing things so it's kind of easier to to do sure
0: sure but Um, yours is a remarkable story uh, and as as a an autobiography, that is going to be essential reading. So hopefully, one, one can look for Christmas or the beginning of next year for yeah, hopefully, Mike hopefully. Dixon the autobiography. Yeah, I'd well, look, it's going to
1: be called. Shall I tell you what it's going to be called?
0: Carl? It, I'd like to share that with with our listeners. Thank you. It's going to be called
1: "Turn Around and Take a Bow."
0: Wow! Which is yeah, the yeah, end? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Which is the end of a joke? Yeah, And the joke, the joke, okay. the joke is the, the conductor for the first time with the orchestra uh, and the orchestra put a piece of paper in front of him and he looks down and reads, reads the piece of paper. And the piece of paper says, when the music stops, turn around and t- oh, wave your arms around when the music stops, turn around and take a bow. So. So there we are. That's I thought that would be a perfect sort of. Perfect, already, absolutely. Yeah. A, this, is a, this is a lovely quip as well. I
0: like that enormously. Thank you so much for your time. You've had a remarkable career. You still have a remarkable career ahead of you. Thank you personally for your support for the Steamspoke and Mir- Mirrors Project oh. because you're one, of my, you're one of the people I go to for a first read and a comment. So yeah, yeah. Thank- I've,
1: well, I've, I've been very privileged. To, I, I honestly have been very privileged to be that one of those people. So, you know, long may that continue. <laughs> Thank you so much
0: for your time. You are, I don't use this word often, you are, sir, a genius.
1: No, 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 I'm absolutely not, but I'm very grateful for you asking me to come on board. I'll brook no argument on that. Um, <laughs> thank you
0: very much indeed for your time, and I'll speak to you down the phone.
1: All right, brilliant, Carl. Thank you. Thanks, so much.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.